All right. Well, again, let's get started. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful day, Lord. We thank you for the sunshine, blue skies. We thank you for the church family we have here, Lord. We thank you that we can come together to worship you, to give you your praise and glory, Lord. So much of our week, we're distracted. We, we get caught up in things, and uh, too often we neglect just giving you our time, our focus, our attention, Lord. So we just pray as we come together that you would have our attention. We want to give you our attention, our hearts, our minds. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak to us today. Teach us, encourage us. May we be open to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. So we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So you all know by now that you know I'm a big sports fan. My UCLA teams won, my, the basketball, football teams won last, yes, last night and Friday, so that was a good thing, right? So you guys know I'm a big sports fan, but there's, there's few other shows that I would watch religiously outside of sports, but one of the few shows that I'll actually watch, I'll be like dedicated to watch, is Survivor. Any of you ever watched Survivor still? Maybe some, you're like, this crowd's like, what's Survivor. Okay. Survivor is one of those shows that I'll watch because it's a very interesting study in social dynamics. The premise of the, the, the game, it's like a game show. Okay? And the show is like these contestants, they're divided into tribes. They call it tribes. right? And these tribes compete in um, challenges. If you win a challenge, your tribe wins a challenge, you avoid going to what's called a tribal council. And at that tribal council, the, the, the members of the tribe vote out one member of their own tribe. Okay, and it continues on. The, the, the object of the game is to be the sole survivor. And how you become the sole survivor is that all those who get eliminated have to vote between two or three people who they think is the best survivor. Uh, ultimately, then, is the sole survivor. Okay, so the object of the game is to vote everybody out, and you remain. You survive. Now, the premise requires individuals to form bonds, relationships, that will help them get advance, or advance in the game. Okay? Now, the trick is that you are forming alliances with people you know ultimately want to eliminate you. All right? So the good people, the good contestants, the good players are ones who can convince other people that you have their best in mind, even though you both know you want each other eliminated. Make sense? So the good players can convince others that their intentions are are good for them. Now, I've always wanted to be on Survivor. I've always wanted to be, I don't want to be on TV, but I've always wanted to play that game Survivor. However, a big component of the game is deception. So I figure that probably would not be good for my pastoral profile if I was on Survivor. Um, The way I would justify is like, I'm just in a game. Right? It's not real world. I'm just in the game. But the reality show, really, when you watch it, it really illustrates and, and in an entertaining way uh, a very important quality or reality of life. 
people who seem like your ally may ultimately be your enemy. Right? If you're not careful, the decisions who you align yourself with will eventually lead you to your destruction, to your elimination. So it really shows how the influence of others, right, is unavoidable, but it's a critical factor. How we live our life, how our life is going to end up. That's why I love the game. It's a very little, it's a small microcosm. It shows the social interactions of the world that we live in as well. Of course, the Bible has some things to say about the influence of others. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. See, we're all influenced by the people we surround ourselves with, right? But over, and over time, we find ourselves kind of resembling other people, Right? If you're in school, remember, have you ever seen people when they start maybe middle school or high school or college and then what they look like afterwards, right? They're usually totally different. They're usually hanging around totally different crowds. They, maybe they even talk different, right? The, the more we are around people, the influence just happens. Sometimes the allure of other people's lifestyles is so appealing, it can create a deceitful attraction, Right? You, you think something looks good, and you want to change your life to get that, to attain that. It looks so attractive. It made me kind of think about, like, why is it so easy for us to adopt the ways and the thinking of the world that, and how other people live, yet it's so difficult, and we're so reluctant to follow Scripture? Right? We easily adopt other people's ways of thinking. We accept the ways that they live. We want to copy their lifestyle. We don't want to copy how they do things. But when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to what God wants to show us and tell us, we are so hesitant. We're so reluctant. Do we realize when we're being influenced by those who really don't have our best in mind? Do you realize when you're following someone's advice or someone's pattern and they don't really have your best in mind, yet you follow it anyways? We've been looking at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And they've been supporting Paul from the beginning. They've been supporting his ministry. They've been supporting him. And while imprisoned for sharing the gospel, Paul's writing this letter of encouragement for them, exhortation to them. And in some instances, Paul's taking this role of a parent for them, right? Trying to tell them and, and, and speak truth to them. Now, parents can't help but give their advice, right? We all have parents, I, I think, most of us. And we can all attest that parents seem like they can't help but give you their advice, whether you like it or not. And I think because God somehow, at least for most parents, gives them this innate alarm when something is wrong. They sense it, don't they? As annoying as it may seem, it's like they sense something is wrong and they want to give you their advice. And sometimes we want to hear it and sometimes we don't want to hear it, right? But we need people in our life who will be able to dare tell us when we're going off track. Right? 
We need people in our life who's going to give us those warning signs. Hey, what you're doing may not be the best decision to make. We need people in our lives to give us those warning signs that are up ahead. We need people in our lives that we know they're going to be our allies and not our enemies. And this is a role that Paul is playing for the church. He wants to make sure that they're making the decisions that they ought to make, and he wants to warn them. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians. Chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Paul says, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, we left off with Paul in the last passage a couple of weeks ago, Paul's imagery of a race, right? Paul is pursuing, he's pressing toward the prize that is before him. He lives for Christ, and each day is an opportunity to know Christ more. However, that great hope is that he will fully experience what it means to know the Lord, to know Christ. Fully experience the glory of knowing him. The years of living by faith will be fully realized in eternity. And that's how Paul lives his life. And in verse 15, he says, Let us therefore, as many as perfect, have this attitude. Right in verse 12, he acknowledges that he's not yet become perfect. He hasn't fully arrived. Paul's view of his life isn't that, well, I'm all complete now. Yeah, I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed now. I can just live the rest of my life, kick up my feet, and just do whatever I want. He says, I have not yet been fully perfected. I'm not fully complete yet. So I pursue, I live my life like I'm running, I'm turning the corner to the home stretch of a race. That's how I'm living my life. I'm pursuing it. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. I talked about how before, how if I compete in something, my flesh may say, I want to win. I don't want to just play a game and just like, oh, okay, no winners, all right. I mean, I, I can do it. I can do it. I can be okay with it now. But I tend to want to run to win. Right? Run to win. The other day, the other night, Michaela challenged me to race. Can you race with me to my car? And I'm like, I don't really want to race. It's like, come on, please race. Okay. Do you think anything in me said let her win? No. 
right? No. No. Nothing in me said let her win. That's why my flesh took over, right? But Paul said, look, run, live your life in such a way that you're pursuing the prize of what Christ has for you. That the life you're living in faith is going to be fully realized. And run in such a way to win. Run your way to someone who wants to win. Now, we're all going to be winners, right? That's not the point. Saying, have that attitude that you're pressing forward. You're running with discipline. When you're a runner, you're a sprinter. Everything, your breath, your breathing, every muscle is working towards in a disciplined way to win the race. And Paul's saying, have that attitude in how you live your life. Run, live your life knowing what lies ahead and you're pursuing for that very thing. To fully know Christ and what all the blessings he has for you. So here he's speaking, and he refers to as many as are perfect have this attitude. Here he's talking about the spiritually mature. Those who are spiritually mature have this attitude in you. Now as we get older, we're expected to have our behavior change accordingly, right? As we get older, we're expected to mature. We don't do things the same way, right? I don't think we suck our thumbs anymore. I think. We don't have the temper tantrums that we used to, maybe, right? We have certain attitudes that we don't do anymore. That's just the natural progression of maturity, right? As we get older, we no longer act the way we used to as a baby or as a kid, hopefully. Hopefully, right? There are some adults who, who, who still haven't gotten out of that phase. They're still doing temper tantrums. You see it on social media, right? The same can be said with spiritual maturity. As we go along in our faith, similar changes need to take place. Our relationship with God needs to mature. It grows. Our perspectives change, right? The way we live, the way we do, do things change. So Paul exhorts the mature believers, says, have this attitude. He says this in chapter 2, verse 5. You remember that? He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And here he refers to this attitude mean Christ's example of humility. What Christ did for us. That even though he was the son of God, he came to earth, took on human flesh, the form of a slave, to die on the cross. And he says, follow that model, what Jesus showed you, that model of humility, humility unto the Lord, have that same attitude in yourselves to God and to each other. So Paul understood. He understood the importance of how we think, our attitudes, how we see our life. And he's been saying this throughout the letter. Have this attitude in you. Be careful how you see things, how you think. He reinforces this importance of our thoughts, our attitudes throughout this letter. Have this attitude. Live your life as if you're in a race in pursuit of the prize. Live your life in pursuit of knowing Christ. Have this attitude of humility towards God and towards others. He goes on, he says, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. If you have any other attitude, if you don't have this attitude, God will reveal it to you. God knows our hearts, our thoughts, our intentions better than we do. 
And God will tell you when your attitude needs checked, right? God will reveal to you when your heart isn't where it needs to be. He may speak to you through people. Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a, I don't know, a teacher or pastor, whatever it is. Sometimes he uses people to speak to you, to check you. Sometimes he may speak to you when you're reading your Bible. You think it's just just a routine devotion, and then something speaks to your heart, to the exact context and, and what's going on in your life. He's trying to get your attention. Sometimes he speaks to you in the quietness. Have you ever had that happen to you? Maybe you're driving in the car by yourself or you're walking, whatever, you're having a quiet moment, and then you just sense God is speaking to you. Your thoughts are changed, and it's addressing something that you need change. You're like, where is this coming from? Right? God may be speaking to you right now about something, like literally right now. Right now. Yeah, don't don't ignore it, right? But sometimes we like to ghost God. Are we like ghosting God? Like, oh, this is not him. Oh, you know, like if you get a, a text from somebody, you're going to pretend you didn't see it. You get a call from somebody, you're going to pretend you don't hear it. You don't pick up. You just let it go to voicemail. Oh, I didn't receive a call. Oh, you text me. Oh, I'm sorry. But see, we can't do that with God. But at some point, God is continuing trying to change and, and, and get us to recognize we may be having a different attitude than we ought to have. Verse 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Literally, Paul is urging them to fall in line and follow the lead that was laid out for them. Soldiers are trained to march in line, right? They don't just walk around haphazardly. It's just all just like a mess. They fall in line following the leaders that are before them. And Paul's telling them, follow our example, the examples that we've laid out for you, remembering the most important example, that is Jesus Christ. See, Paul can tell them, follow my lead, because why? Who's his leader? It's Jesus, right? He says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So Paul's able to say, look, follow our lead because we're following Christ. That's our lead. That's our example. Now, parents, how many of you get frustrated with your kids for not listening to, they're not listening to your advice? Huh? Does, that, does that frustrate you? You don't have to raise your hands yeah, if, you, if you want. All the kids are looking. <laughs> all right, you don't see what I see, but I'm looking, and all of a sudden I see a bunch of kids looking like, don't you raise your hand, <laughs> right? Why don't we listen? Why don't they listen? Well, parents, if you get frustrated, you got to remember when you were their age, right? When you were their age, you probably resemble them more than you resemble yourself now. Or maybe they resemble you now. I don't know, right? But see, when we're young, our mentality when we're young is to follow the appetites of our desires. What we want That's what we pursue, right? Warning signs, you know what? Let me learn for myself. I don't know if your kids ever told you that. Let me learn for myself. You're like, gosh. As parents, we don't want you to learn for yourself because it can be painful. But see, when you're young, that's just your perspective. 
You want to follow whatever desires you have. And of course, you know, kids, kids got to tell you, parents don't always mature out of that either. It's easier to say something, but they may also be pursuing whatever they desire. God is trying to constantly warn us of consequence of our decisions. But how many times do we heed his, his warnings, right? It's like a baby. Our bellies dictate our attitudes, right? When you have a baby, when it's hungry, what's he doing? Does he crawl over to your door or your bed and knock and say, Excuse me, Mommy, Dad, I'm kind of hungry. Can you feed me, please? Does a baby crawl to the kitchen and prepare its own food? Of course not, right? Cries. I won't cry in the mic, right? But it cries. It demands, feed me now. When it's done, it's business. Hey, change me now, right? But as you get older, you're supposed to change. The mindset needs to change. Of course, God continues to warn us, and sometimes we think he's trying to deceive us. I've been driving for a while. I've yet to come across a dead-end sign that lied to me. I've yet to come down a street, and the street says, road closed. No uh, exit here or whatever. How many of you have ever tried it anyways? Have you ever done that? i got to admit, I've done that. I've turned a corner. I saw a sign that said, road closed. No exit point. And you thought, well, maybe I could find one. <laughs> I've yet to see a road sign that lied to me. That said, yeah, here's a dead end, but there really isn't. That's just for other people. I've yet to see that. And see, in our mindset, we think God tries to deceive us when he warns us. He's not lying to us. When he says, warning, be careful, watch out, don't do this, it's because there is an actual threat on the other side of that consequence, other side of that decision. And the mindset on earthly things is in direct opposition with God. So Paul's urging the church to have the same attitude, follow the pattern available, that there's danger ahead, and it's all around. He says in verse 18, For many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that there are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now notice Paul's heart here for the unbelieving. He says he weeps for those who are the enemies of the cross. Particularly of his fellow Jews. We see this in Romans 9. Paul talking about it, he says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. See Paul's heart. He says he weeps for the unbelievers. Notice Jesus wept over unbelieving Jerusalem when he looked over Jerusalem. He wept over them. Paul says, I weep over those, my fellow brethren, 
who don't believe in Christ. And made me think, and it convicted my heart. If we could have such a burden for the lost, that really convicted my heart. Do we, is our heart so stirred on those who don't know Christ that our heart is broken? He goes on, Paul warns of these enemies of the cross. He describes them, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. There are people who hate the cross and all that it symbolizes. They despise the notion of being sinful. They resent the idea of ever needing a Savior, and they reject the need for repentance. They find it ludicrous that Jesus would resurrect from the dead, and they refuse the need to submit control of their life to God. They insist on being their own God. And then they impose their choices their desires upon others to tell them what they ought to believe. These are the enemies of the cross. And we see this all around us today. The world is in direct opposition with God. It used to be subtle. We used to be known as a Christian country. Now you can say that in quotations. But the opposition to God used to be subtle. However, now the hatred against God, the enmity against God, has become openly brazen in our culture, in our society. Sin is paraded. Sinful lifestyles are glorified. People live to gratify their desires without any regard to what is decent. Right? We see this. Morality is subjective to the whims of the person. If you feel that it's right, then it's right. People don't realize they're slaves to the impulses of their flesh. They're slaves to it. And what we're seeing is sin unchecked only becomes increasingly depraved. Sin unchecked only becomes increasingly depraved. It's like food that rots. Have you ever seen that food that rots just kind of go the other way and get better, taste better, besides blue cheese, I guess? (laughs) When food rots, it just gets worse. And that's what sin is like. Sin takes hold of the mind and it rots the soul. That's the effect of sin. And yet people are so deceived They accept and tolerate and celebrate all these things, all these lives, all these behaviors, just because someone says, that's what I want. That's how I am. So we're seeing this normalized in our country, right? Some may say, if you've been in this country long enough, it's come to the point that like we've never seen before in our country, right? Some of us can look and say, man, it's gotten worse. But see, the condition of humans haven't gotten worse. It's always been there. God has always warned his people. He's warned Israel about the othering nations. Keep away from their influence. 
because it's going to change you. In Romans, Paul, Romans 1, Paul talks about that. There was a point where God gave people over to their depraved minds. He's like, you're going to do whatever you want. That's what you're going to do. See, the mindset on earthly things is in direct opposition with God. The enemies of the cross, they're not keeping it to themselves anymore. They're saying, you need to adopt what we think is right. See, us as Christians, believers, we're not telling the unbelieving world what we think. It's not our standards. It's not our choices. It's what God has laid out for us. Right? It's not because Christians tell us what to do. But see, the world wants to say, this is how you need to be. This is how you need to think. This is what you need to accept. This is what you need to tolerate. This is the standard. Paul says what people, well, what people don't realize is their end is destruction. Their end goal is going to be their destruction. Their glory is the shameful life that they live now. If you're going to live your life the way you want to, that is going to be your glory now. But it's going to be nothing to boast about before God. You live your life the way you want now, you'll have nothing to boast about before God. That's not going to mean a thing. That's going to lead to your destruction. Their glory is the shameful life they live. Whatever shameful lifestyle they want to parade now, they won't be parading it before the Holy Almighty God. Verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call, in Isaiah 5, 20, 21, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness with light and light for darkness, substitute bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. You know, it's funny, a funny story. When I was a kid, my sister, older sister, she wanted to make me a peanut butter sandwich. She's gone in the fridge. She got a jar of what would look like peanut butter, opened the jar, got the spread, spread it on some bread, and gave it to me. It looked like peanut butter. I ate it, and it wasn't peanut butter. It was like a spicy Korean mustard. I had a spicy cream mustard sandwich. I spit that thing out. Because <laughs> even though it looked like peanut butter, you could not substitute that for peanut butter. See, the world wants to say, this is good, and it's not. That's the, come, that's the place where we've come to in our country, in our society. People calling evil good and good evil. And what will it take for us to listen he goes on in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Paul used that word. We see this word citizenship. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 27. We saw that one in verb form, where he said, only conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ. Paul brings them back to remember who they are and what their hope is. He's saying this is no longer our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. He says a deposit has been made. The mortgage is paid for. We just can't move in yet. That's what we're waiting for. He says, look, the debt has been paid. It's waiting for you. It's waiting for you. It's just not our time to move. Paul talks about, he says, we eagerly wait. There's other times when Paul used this phrase of eagerly waiting. What are we eagerly waiting for? What should we be patiently waiting for? 
In Romans 8, 19, he talks about all of creation is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Romans 8, 23, 25, believers are waiting for their adoption. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, 8, we're, we're eagerly waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes. We have a church member whose daughter's getting married this weekend. The best moments of the wedding is when those doors open and you see the bride for the first time. That's an amazing moment. When I got married, I was standing up in the front with the pastor, and the pastor told me, Mike, savor this moment. When those doors open, savor that moment when you see Jamie come in. And so I stood up there and I was waiting. I'm like, okay, I'm waiting for this moment. And the music started. I'm waiting for that moment. And you know what? What happens? Music starts. What do they do? Everyone rose up and obstructed my view. I was like, wait. I had to go up on my tippy toes. Maybe go up one step. To, I wanted to make sure I saw that moment. I managed to see enough. He says, we eagerly wait for that moment. The revealing, the revelation of Jesus Christ is coming. The hope of righteousness, Galatians 5.5. 5. And then in Hebrews, whether Paul wrote Hebrews or not, is not the point. Hebrews 9.27-28, we eagerly wait for Christ's appearance. Why should we have a different life? Why should we live a different life? Because this is not our home. Our citizenship is not in California. It's not in the United States. It's not on this planet. When we're in Christ, our home is waiting for us. And as residents of that future home, we need to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of that. Verse 20. We eagerly wait for Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Paul talks about what we're eagerly waiting for. Our body will be transformed from this humble state, this corruptible state, into a new body. We will be transformed and be like him. We will be made new in Christ. Fully realize what it's like. What will we look like? I don't know. How old will we be? I have no idea. Maybe we'll be whatever Adam and Eve was created in that that form. I don't know. But it's going to be perfect. No more pain. No more depression. No more waiting for appointments. No more sickness. That's what we're waiting for. That is what we are pursuing. Wrap it up in verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Notice Paul's affections for the Philippians church here. He calls them my beloved twice. My brethren. He calls them his joy and crown. Is there any doubt that Paul is speaking to the Philippian church out of love for them? As much as we may not like our parents who give us, tells us what to do, hopefully if their heart is in the right place, they speak out of love for us. Paul is saying, look, my beloved, my brethren, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord. 
He says, in light of all the trouble, the enemies of the cross that's trying to distract you, they're going to say that you're, they're your ally. They don't have your best in mind because if they had your best in mind, they would lead you to the Lord. He says, no. There are enemies of the cross, so stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. Knowing there are enemies of the cross, we need to stand firm in the Lord. The influence of the ungodly is out there. It's real and it's powerful. And God continuously warns Israel and he continuously warns us. Israel failed to heed God's warning and they got swept away into captivity, into slavery, and into, by the Syrians and the Babylonians. We need to make sure we're not getting swept away. Some things to think about in conclusion. Something to marinate. We look at this passage. First thing, we need to identify the footsteps we're following. We need to be aware, identify whose examples are we following in our life. And the second thing, examine the worthiness of the pattern we are copying. Is it worth that I'm following this example? What, is it doing anything for me, anything good in me? Understand where the influence is leading you. Where are they leading you? If you're going to follow this crowd, where is it going to lead you? If it's leading you further away from God, what are you doing? Do you understand where they're leading you to? They don't have your best in mind. They have their own interests in mind. And then fourthly, take a stand in opposition to what is distracting and destructive. If it's leading you further and further away from God, they're heading for destruction. Their end is destruction. Why are you going that way? Why are you heading that direction? So many want a hopeful life. So many are seeking a hopeful life. Our great hope is in Christ. We have a new body, a new reality. No more sin, no more sickness, no more death. Resurrected body. What else can we want? Pursue that. Let's pursue it together. Stand firm together as Paul charged the church. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord. Lord, there are enemies of the cross all around us. Some may seem like they have our best interests in mind. Some may think they have good intentions in mind. But Lord, if they're leading us away from you, they're leading us to destruction. If they're only following their own appetites, their own desires, Lord, it's only going to deceive us. Help us, Lord, to stand firm in you, Lord God. To keep our eyes focused on the prize, not being distracted, not looking back, but our eyes toward the prize of the hope that we have in you, Lord Jesus. We pray this, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen.